Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Suzanne Blimson. Years of austerity and rising bills have eroded the decades-long consensus in Britain that private companies run things more efficiently than the state. Privatised water utilities have come in for particular criticism and are among the companies targeted for renationalisation by the opposition Labour Party. But would the cost be prohibitive? Jill Plimmer discusses this question with Jonathan Ford. The question of the water industry's future in Britain has become a very, very heated one, with Labour promising to nationalise the industry if it comes to power, claiming that this will make things a lot better for customers. And obviously the industry extremely anxious and cross about the way in which its future has been put into question in this way. I suppose the first thing, Jill, is is it correct to say that customers pay more when water services are in private hands? Well, it depends who you're comparing it to, but a study that compared water prices in England and Wales with Scotland, where it was nationalised, shows that they are more expensive in England and Wales. I think bills are £70 higher in England. And according to the National Audit Office, water prices in England and Wales were 40% higher in 2012 than they were at privatisation. So there's something behind the analysis that the privatisation that took place hasn't been overwhelmingly of benefit to the customer. I mean, obviously, the industry itself talks about the large amount of investment it's put in. But let's turn now to the story that you've written, which is about the question of how much it would cost to privatise the industry. Your story contains some calculations from Moody's, the credit rating agency, which says that the cost to the government of nationalising water would be about 14 and a half billion pounds. Now that's significantly lower than the forty-four billion pounds, which was cited in a pretty well-circulated paper from a think tank called the Social Market Foundation last year. Now, what accounts for that big difference? I mean, have water shares collapsed in value since the SMF came out with their number? It's all about the mechanism that you use. Labour isn't proposing to make takeover bids for companies in the stock market at stock market prices. What they're planning to do is to buy out the regulated company that owns the asset and delivers the water from the holding company. So Labour has said that it would buy the water companies on the basis of their book value, which is essentially the value of the asset minus their net debt. And the calculation by Moody's for the FT has estimated that that's around $14.5 billion. Of course, that's only a starting point because what Labour is also saying is that they would look at some of the costs that have been incurred since privatisation. So they may, for example, deduct the £1 billion fund pension deficit that's been ramped up since privatisation and take into account things such as land sales where the water company sold off a lot of the land and they don't think that the price of that should be included in the compensation price. Now, some people would say that forcing people to sell you their company at net asset value would be quite tough. I mean, there are some companies in the stock market which trade at or below book value, but a lot of them don't. And this is a quite profitable industry. So is that not a bit unfair to basically start from the position that you're simply going to pay what the assets are worth and no more? 
Well, the argument that Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party have made, and in fact a point where they seem to agree with Michael Gove and the Conservative Party, is that these companies have made excessive returns since privatisation. And because of that, they don't see that they should pay them a premium based on their excessive returns. England and Wales, in fact, are the only countries in the world to have privatised the water companies on this basis, handing over the regional water supplies to private companies in 1988 with no debt and, in fact, giving them a grant of £1.5 billion. Since then, they've racked up £51 billion in borrowing and paid out £56 billion in dividends. So Labour is saying, why should we pay these companies that have racked up all this debt, they took over the water companies for nothing, why should we actually pay them a market premium? So, Jill, really what you're saying is what the companies have done is they have effectively borrowed to pay the investment returns to their private owners. They've basically borrowed £51 million from the markets and simply flushed it straight back out into the pockets of the shareholders and dividends. I mean, water companies would very much deny that, and I think off what the financial regulator would deny that, they would claim that they have invested in the water companies and brought about improvements. Now, one of the reasons why the story you've written has obviously attracted quite a lot of attention, particularly among those who follow the sector, invest in it, is, of course, that when assets are nationalised, there's really only one buyer, that's the government of the day. Now, obviously, Labour isn't yet the government, and they would have to win an election in order to implement this policy. But it is possible for a political party, if this is their policy, in effect, to talk down, if you like, the value of the asset they want to buy by saying, we're really not going to pay very much for this. And it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, because basically investors realise they really will only pay this. So the question I have for you is, what protections do the investors in the water companies have against really being squeezed unfairly, potentially, by a Labour government in future? I mean, I think there's two issues. One is that, first of all, only three of these companies are owned by stock market listed entities. The rest are owned by private equity or sovereign wealth funds and some pension funds. So that means that their value isn't set by the stock market per se. The second is that stock market investments, as we all know, do go up and down. I also cover a company called Interserve and shareholders have recently lost all their stock market value. So it's not the only time that investors in a company can lose their money. As to whether investors in these companies have some protections, first of all, the debt holders would be protected because the debt would be transferred to the government. And they could even do quite well out of this because investors and assets that are owned by government often get quite high ratings from ratings agencies. Talking really about equity investors of here. Course. For the equity investors, they may be able to call on the international courts and certainly there would be likely to be challenges. Clearly, if this is going to be implemented, there will be a number of hoops the government will have to leap through to bring this legally to a conclusion. And I guess that will provide some backup for investors to make sure that they are treated reasonably fairly. There's actually a bit of history here. If we go back to the 1970s, you see the then government of the day, the Labour government, nationalised the aviation and shipbuilding industries, and they went through a very similar process. There was a court process. Investors will be able to challenge the adjudication of Parliament 
And then subsequently, as you suggest, there are mechanisms through investor treaties and the European Convention on Human Rights, which has protections around property, which mean that investors have some legal rights which can be exercised in international courts. But those are unproven, and we just don't know very much about them. What obviously happened in 1977 was there was a lot of blood-curdling noises made about people challenging things in the courts. But in the end, actually, the thing went through fairly smoothly without dramatic derailment. There is a broader issue, I suppose, with this of fairness and whether this is being seen to be done in a reasonable way if the water industry is to be nationalised. And, you know, a number of people, international investors... Others have, and you've written about this, have said things like they're concerned that the UK is changing the rules and this is discouraging people from wanting to invest in the UK. Do you think that's a risk with this whole process if the Labour government goes ahead and nationalises it at book value in the face of real protests? Well, it's hardly as if the companies are being expropriated and clearly the UK is still an attractive place to do business. There's still investment into the UK, particularly from China and elsewhere. I think it depends how it's handled, but I think the reality is that England and Wales are unique in having done this particular privatisation of the water companies. and So it wouldn't necessarily be seen as an indication as a whole of how a potential Labour government would behave. Labour is also looking at renationalising energy companies and rail and telecoms companies, and it could be an argument for either doing them all at once or not at all, because maybe you increase the risk of investors getting scared if you do it bit by bit. Doing everything at the same time seems to me <laughs> a bit like absorbing all the government bandwidth in the way that this government has done with Brexit. But the reality is that the UK has nationalised electricity, gas, coal, steel and road haulage industries in the past and recovered. Well, obviously, this is a debate which is not only interesting to people in the UK, but people across Europe and, and indeed more widely. It's a fascinating debate. And, you know, Britain, I suppose, was the place where privatisation was invented. And with this, this is becoming very much an acid test to see whether the UK will stay the course or will change tack and start to take things back into public ownership. So thanks very much. That was FT Infrastructure Correspondent Jill Glimmer talking to City Editor Jonathan Ford. We'll put a link to Jill's story in our show notes. And if you'd like to hear more from Jill and Jonathan on Britain's controversial privatisation model, listen to our podcast series at ft.com slash investigations. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com slash offer. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
only from Rustolium.